Greetings, everybody, and thanks for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Kevin Drewley, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow associate editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. It's September, and we're coming to you with the final episode of our teens, number 19, and appreciate you following along, as always. To keep up with all the latest news from around the safety world, please check our website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We also have a new online home for our sister publication, Family Safety and Health. You can find it at safetyandhealthmagazine.com family to learn more about safety away from work. During this month's episode, we'll take a deep dive with Barry into one of our stories from the September issue of Safety and Health, learning more about the ins and outs of operating as a one-person safety team. We'll also avoid awkward positions and postures while conducting our five questions with segment with Julia Abate, who serves as executive director of the Ergonomic Center at North Carolina State University. We'll talk more with Julia about her area of expertise as more workers return to physical work locations. And of course, stay tuned for our pop quiz, where we'll talk about things we've compiled over the course of our lives, some of which may still be gathering dust or are worth a pretty penny. Is everybody ready? Let's get this episode rolling. month here on the safe side we take an in-depth look at a feature story from the pages of safety and health magazine and we call that our deep dive this month we'll be talking with barry about the principles of being a one-person safety team as barry writes in a feature article in our september issue being a one-person safety team can be as overwhelming as it might sound but by using such skills as time management and relationship building you can begin on a road to success toward accomplishing this endeavor Barry, is it still a month that sees some public pools open, at least on the weekend? Could you please safely climb to the top of the nearest springboard and embark on this deep dive? Well, thank you, Kevin. And here on the podcast, we're a three-person team. But in safety, there are times when a safety professional serves as a one-person team or a solo safety team. To some of you in the audience, it may seem a little bit overwhelming, uh, but there are some benefits to being a one-person team. When it comes to your safety program, you get to put your stamp on it. You own it. And you can also build some strong professional relationships with people company-wide, from those in the C-suite in your organization to workers on the shop floor. And those relationships can help build a group of safety advocates who carry your message forward and spread it to others, sort of like the Johnny Appleseeds of safety, planting and promoting good safety behaviors wherever they go. One of the safety pros I spoke to for this story, Holly Burgess, uh, who works at Phoenix Paper in Kentucky, said those relationships began for her by meeting people, saying hello, and most of all, giving them her cell phone number, letting them know, as she put it, that as the safety team, she is a 24-7 service to those workers. She did say that you do have to be prepared because some workers may call you at 2 a.m., but when there is a safety issue, being there to help solve it is her job, and she owed it to those workers to be available no matter what time of the day it was. And that same service-oriented focus was evident when I talked to Shauna Frazier-Nagel who is the Vice President of Safety and a third-generation co-owner of Fraser Engineering in Massachusetts. She described the company's safety culture as a culture of caring, and Shauna said that many of the construction contractors they work with have seen her sort of grow up in the family business, and many workers she deals with that have young children, just like she does, allows her to connect on a personal level, and it also makes safety a personal duty for her. She wants those workers to go home to their children and to go to soccer games or school musicals and dance recitals just as she does with her own children. The reward for her is going to job sites 
sites and being what she called a safety coach. She said she never really wants to be a safety cop on the job site, admonishing people for bad behaviors. So as a coach, she can be the person who those workers come to for help and for guidance about safety issues. And the result of building that kind of trust with workers can also have a number of rewards. I spoke with Jamie Green, who now works for Michigan OSHA. He spent 26 years in the manufacturing industry, mostly in roles as a solo safety person. And he said some of the most valuable times he spent as a one-person safety team were with his sleeves rolled up, standing right next to a worker at their job function, listening to them, understanding what they went through on a daily basis. So you might ask, what was the result of that time on the manufacturing lines? Well, Jamie said workers would page him over the intercom system whenever a new piece of equipment or a new chemical came in that they weren't familiar with. And that's before they would even page their own supervisors. One benefit of that, he said, was that management and company leaders started to hear his name called over and over in those situations, and they began to ask questions. They came to realize that he was the go-to guy for workers, and that elevated the status of safety at their organization. Uh, Now, are there challenges? Absolutely. People I talk to discuss feelings of isolation, feeling as if they're an afterthought in an organization and forgotten, or never feeling caught up. One person said, I always felt like I was chasing my tail. But just as big as some of those challenges are, the rewards are big too. Shauna Frazier-Nagel, who I mentioned, said she was providing some refresher training one day to a worker who had been on paternity leave. And late that night, she was checking her email at home and got a thank you from that worker for going the extra mile and providing him with training. And that simple email message just meant the world to her that she had made an impact on that worker. So Barry, what personality traits does someone in a one-person safety role need? Well, it's interesting, Alan, because Holly Burgess told me a funny story about this. She said, as a one-person team, you might not have someone to walk you around the shop floor and introduce you to people. So she'd just do it herself. She said, I'm loud. I'm out there. So I just introduced myself. And along with a loud voice, uh, a thick skin can also help. Some workers can have trust issues with safety professionals. For example, Burgess said that she was in a job when she was a one-person team managing workers at 13 different sites around the country. And when she'd visit, she would tell workers on her visit that she'd be back again. And their response was often, yeah, that's what the last person said. Uh, Some workers, according to Burgess, may not have seen a safety person for years in that setting. And she did change that by building a schedule to get to every work location on a regular basis. And while we're talking about schedules, it brings me to a really important one, time management. It's critical, especially when you're a lone safety person and balancing so much on your plate or probably what feels like multiple plates at all times. Listening, obviously, is very important. One source told me that If she was in a meeting or working on paperwork and a worker came to her with a safety concern, she would always stop or step out of that meeting. And she said, just how important is that piece of paper back on your desk when a worker has a concern? Which I thought was a really interesting quote. Being a good communicator is another trait that's really valuable. And Melissa Black, who is the president of her own safety consulting company in Atlanta, she encouraged folks to speak two different languages as a solo safety person. One language is motivating employees on an emotional level to drive behavior changes. And the other language is for those in the C-suite. And that takes communicating in a business-focused, a concise, and a bottom-line impact sort of way. How does a solo safety person make sure that they're getting out there in front of the workers? Well, Kevin, for all the people I spoke with, that involved a a boots-on-the-ground approach and meeting workers wherever they were. 
Sometimes those interactions with workers could be a little scary in some cases. Uh, Nicole Munier, who is a safety director at Citizens Electric Corporation in Missouri, said she was on a site uh, checking on utility linemen who were doing a pole top rescue that day. And as they were doing this safety exercise, they said, um, hey, Nicole, would you like to learn how to climb the pole? Now, she, she admitted that she wasn't very keen on doing it at first, but she did it. She wasn't an expert climber, of course, uh, but Nicole said everyone got a laugh out of it. And that was one interaction that helped her build trust with those workers. And it gave her a greater appreciation for and a greater understanding of the work that they do every day. For some solo safety professionals, being present means showing up at different locations anywhere in the country. Holly Burgess mentioned that that could mean in any weather and any time of the year. She shared a funny story about how a Kentucky girl, as she called herself, stepped out of a vehicle and into a foot of snow in Boston to meet a group of workers. One story that didn't make it into the magazine was how she became quite a frequent flyer while visiting her teams around the country. And she mentioned that she was at P.F. Chang's in the Atlanta airport and the waitress said, do you want the usual? She said, I knew right then it was time to pick a new restaurant. Burgess also said wherever she was, she wanted to be where the workers were. So she would always ask to be teamed up on a truck with a work crew to see what they do, to talk to them, and to make sure, as she mentioned, that they always had her phone number handy. And she made the point that whenever she went across the country, she always had a training to share with those workers. She brought something with her, and she said she always wanted to leave behind a safety message for those workers. Well, thank you so much, as always, Barry, for this interesting and unique feature. If you want to read more about one-person safety teams and other news from around the safety world, please check out the September issue of Safety and Health Magazine or visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. If you're listening to this podcast, we're pretty sure you like staying safe on the job and keeping others safe as well. We're also pretty sure that you want to stay safe and healthy when you're away from work, and we have a great way to help you out. It's Family Safety and Health Magazine, from the makers of the award-winning Safety and Health Magazine. Family Safety and Health has tips and advice on topics from the home to the roadway and from your local parks and recreation areas to your medicine cabinet. Visit our new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com family or call 800-621-7619 to learn how you can get a subscription for yourself, your coworkers, your friends, and your family. Remember, that's Family Safety and Health, brought to you by the team that brings you Safety and Health Magazine. With each passing week of the calendar, more workers are heading back to their physical work locations after long COVID-19 disruptions. For some, that means a change in work environment after several months, or in some cases, more than a year at temporary home workstations. The challenge of ensuring that workers eliminate discomfort and injury risk on the job is a passion for Julia Abate, who is our guest on this month's Five Questions With segment. And while earning her undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan, Julia realized that she didn't want to design cars like many of her fellow students, Instead, an elective course in ergonomics put her on a path to a career that's dedicated to designing for people. Today, Julia is the executive director of the Ergonomics Center at North Carolina State University, where she and her team enhance the lives and performance of workers in dozens of industries. Julia, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Julia, the first question I want to share with you is, with more workers heading back to those physical workplaces, what type of ergonomics challenges could they be facing? Well, a lot of it depends on how they ended up when they were working from home. 
there were many employers who allowed their workers to take equipment from the office to their home office, such as their chairs, their monitors, their keyboards. And if they're at their home office now and they're heading back to work, they're going to probably need to take those back to the office um, or they're going to have nothing waiting for them. Um, And a lot of employers right now are also looking at offering flexible work schedules for the workers out there. So they might be working from home two days a week and three days a week. So depending on what's going on within their company, they might need some new equipment either at the office or ultimately at their home if they're going to continue working there. If they took a chair from their primary office to their house and now they're planning on working in both locations, they're going to need some equipment either at the home or the office. And a lot of folks that are going back to the office that left their equipment there are going to want to make sure that it's still adjusted for them. Things change, especially, you know, over the course of a year. So making sure that their equipment's adapting to them is going to be important in the long run. Julia, is there a checklist that workers should start with when returning to new duties or a new setting? There are a lot of free resources out there. Um, I do encourage people to look for resources that are at least written or worked on by some ergonomists. And there's many to choose from. We actually have one on our website as well. But the main thing that they need to do is kind of take a look at every single aspect. When you're sitting in a chair, is it the right height? Is the seat depth correct for them? Even if it was set up for them correctly a year ago, our bodies change and the way we sit changes. So we want to make sure that everything is still set up correctly for us. And you never know, you might have had, you know, Goldilocks come sit in your chair while you were gone too. So making sure our chairs are set up, our monitors are set up, and our keyboards are set up in the right location is going to be important as we head back. So what are some signals that a new work arrangement or setting isn't working from an ergonomic uh, perspective? Increased pain or a new discomfort or pain could really signify that things are not set up for them. For example, neck discomfort could mean that their monitor is not in the right position. It could be too high or too low, depending if they're wearing progressives or bifocals, or had a change in prescription while they were gone. Shoulder pain could mean that the mouse is too far away from where they, you know, they need to be using it, or their armrests are at the wrong height. Wrist pain obviously could mean that the keyboard is in the wrong location. We want those wrists nice and straight and neutral. So where things were set up before, you might need to readjust them and take a look at that. And if you're experiencing pain, you want to kind of identify what might be the root cause of that and then fix it quickly while you can. I also recommend that a lot of workers, that they take short micro breaks throughout the day, especially going back into an office setting. You know, at home, we can get up, we can go get a drink of water, go to the restroom, do our laundry, you know, deal with our families if we need to. And it's a little more flexible. In the office, we tend to to focus sometimes a little more. So taking some of those micro breaks really helps just a couple minutes every hour to get up, stretch, move, get the blood flowing to our muscles because the muscles need that oxygen to stay healthy. Julia, your center has done work in more than 30 different industries. Is there a common ergonomic thread in all of those industries or are the concerns different in all those? You know, I I kind of laugh whenever people ask, you know, do you have specific work experience in this industry or that industry? Because in ergonomics, the risk factors and the stressors that we look for are the same no matter what industry we're in. We look at how, how the body functions in the work environment. So we look at how much effort or force is required from the body and from the particular body parts and how often a task is done or that force is executed and the amount of movement. So in common terms, is it repetitive or is it what we call static where you're not moving? 
And the last thing we look at is the posture the body part is in. You know, is the wrist bent? Is it straight? And each of those stressors can pose some level of risk on its own, but it's usually when they overlap that the the risk increases. So what we look at across all different industries in the office and manufacturing, um, no matter where we are, we're looking for those risk factors to see what level they're at and how they're interacting with each other and then what we can do to minimize the stress to the body. For workers whose jobs allow them to remain at home, what type of ergonomic checkup, so to speak, should they be doing? I recommend to do a gut check every week. Um, I constantly change my my chair settings at home and sometimes the location of where I'm working. Um, Some days I might like to recline a little bit. Some days I might have my armrests up for support. Sometimes I might drop them all the way down. Sometimes I'll work from the kitchen counter a little bit um, standing to give my body a change. So, you know, just... Do a little gut check on yourself every once in a while to say, you know, am I feeling any stress, any feeling, any discomfort? And do I need to to reassess where my equipment is at? Do I need to adjust my chair? Um, I don't know who said it first, but a common saying in our field is the best position is your next position. So that doesn't mean I have to, to sit and stand and alternate because that's a big hot topic right now. But it means that at least every hour or so, I want to get up and move and get that blood flow going. Um, and incorporating that movement is going to be key to, to keeping your muscles healthy, too. So, you know, if you're going to stay at home, then just make sure you're you're getting up and not um, sitting down. The what we're finding too is with the the pandemic, a lot of folks who did who work at home, they they lose that boundary between work and home life and and that balance. So they might be checking their emails, you know, at nine or 10 o'clock at night still, but you want to make sure that you you are able to step away when possible and give your body a break um, from the stress and from the, you know, just the focus that you have sometimes. So make sure that you're, you're adding some variety in there to your day. Great. Well, Julia, we truly appreciate you sharing some time with us and sharing your expertise with our listeners. Thank you so much for everything you do for worker safety and health. It was great to have you with us here on The Safe Side. It's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. We all gather stuff throughout our lives, and sometimes that's intentional, as in the case of collections. September 25th, as some of you in the audience may know, is Comic Book Day across the country. And as we wind down this episode, we wanted to share our favorite collections from the past and present. I'll go first. In the late 80s, I think like many uh, young men, I collected baseball cards in the late 80s, early 90s. And from time to time, I still I still buy an occasional pack. So um, it's interesting. I still have some. My dad still wants me to go through them <laughs> when I was home in July. He uh, basically brought a big uh, shoebox full for my brother and I to go through. I don't think we ever got the chance, but uh, I don't know that there's anything really valuable in there. It's probably a lot of players that you've never heard of. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Kevin, what about you? I would say past and present, my my most prized collection is also related to baseball. I've collected those miniature Major League Baseball Sunday helmets ever since I can remember. I know it started just having a few helmets willy-nilly, and then it became, uh, hey, Mom, I need the Phillies today, and I'm building my collection because my dad built a very sturdy stand, I suppose, that now is approaching 30 years old. So it's stood the test of time. It started out when they were still the, the four divisions before we got the three divisions in, in each league and the wild card, and it's just been interesting. I've I've kept you know a lot of the vintage ones, and fortunately, sometimes what's old is is new again. The the Blue Jays and the Astros have recently gone back to what they wore in the in the '90s and late '80s when I started collecting, and uh, it's just kind of stood the test of time. There was you know times I was away at college and couldn't get back to the epicenter for me, which was Ted Drews in St. Louis. So um, instead of getting the new 
Nationals helmet. I just flipped the Expos upside down to make the Montreal M a Washington W. So I've stayed mostly intact with it through the years. I get back home when I can, and the the shop doesn't always update the helmets. And I understand there's things such as eBay and Amazon, but with respect to the new Padre Brown, you you can't buy one, and I'm not going to buy a dozen of them. I wouldn't have much of a need. I guess I could give them out next time uh, Congress and Expo is in San Diego. But yeah, I'd say that there was a little while that I got away from it, and then an old roommate sort of nudged me to to display him again. But yeah, it'll be something that I imagine I'll I'll keep up for for years to come. Uh, Barry, how about yourself? Well, Kevin, I'll check my basement. I may have that Philly Sunday helmet for you still in the basement somewhere. I, I feel like as a as a kid, I collected just about everything: uh, coins, stamps, beer cans. There used to be a set of uh, one cola company had baseball players on the cola cans, baseball cards on the back of the snack cake boxes. We used to collect those. Nowadays, it's it's mainly just sports cards. Um, like like Alan, I've slowed down quite a bit. Uh, I just uh, probably collect football more than anything. And and I think, uh, as Alan said, some of the players I have saved have probably more meaning to me than anybody else. Uh, for example, I'll probably never let go of my John Elway rookie card uh, being my favorite player. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's mainly what I do now. And, and Alan, as you said, I occasionally grab a pack at the store when I can, but that's about my speed right now on collecting. Now we want to hear from you. Go ahead and share your favorite collections by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or checking in with the hashtag SafesidePopQuiz on social media. We want to say thanks to everyone out there for spending a little time with us today. If you want to keep your employees, your colleagues, and your family members safe, we have just the publication for you, Family Safety and Health. Each issue is packed with helpful tips that will keep families safe at home and in the community, along with informational articles about your health. To get a free copy or learn more, visit our new website, safetyandhealthmagazine.com family, or subscribe by calling 800-621-7619. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth at nsc.org. And to find stories such as Barry's feature on one-person safety teams, as well as all the latest news about safety and health, visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast is provided by Steve Maslin. Thank you, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, feel free to tell a fellow safety pro about this podcast, and please stay on the safe side. Safe side.